Good morning. Anybody there? Hello. How are you? Oh, I'm well. Thank you so much, Rod. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm so glad to speak with you today. Yeah, it's such a pleasure. I'm so excited. And uh, do you want to get started? I have a whole bunch of questions for you. Oh, I hope I have a whole bunch of answers. So, <laughs> no, that's totally fine. Up, yeah, yeah, we'll we'll take it easy. And yeah, as as the poet, you you folks have the power to transform the answer. So, <laughs> you're in Illinois, right? Right. Yeah. Has that been home your whole life? No, I grew up in Northeast Ohio, uh, about three miles south of Lake Erie, uh, okay. where it snows a lot. Um, yeah, yeah. How are the winters in Ohio? Yeah. Um, the winters in Ohio were a little easier because you'd get wet snow and it was mm. easy to push. Uh, in, yeah, cent yeah. in central Illinois, I live uh, about two miles south of Springfield. The uh, winters are ice and it's mm. it's it's tougher. Yeah, that's my worst nightmare because I'm in Wyoming and so we get really dry, thick snow. Mm -hmm. but it hardly ever comes down anymore. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, there used to be these huge piles and, and we would be very concerned about potential closures and stuff like that. And now it's, it's really not as frequent as, as it used to be. But yeah, I really don't envy that wet, cold Illinois. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, yeah. The, the ice is terrible. It's just, and I, I learned very early to drive like a grandma um, when I was about, <laughs> yeah, when I was 17, some nice fella pulled me out of a ditch and said, look, you gotta, you know, you gotta drive like a grandma. And I said, yeah, okay. you gotta chill out. Yeah. <laughs> and then people will toot, but you think, okay, well, I'm saving your life. You right. Know? Right. You can toot at me all you want. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's the story of my life over here. I'm a very cautious driver and I really don't like getting myself in trouble on the road because in these roads, I mean, you're kind of on your own people are yes, going wild yes. over here <laughs> did, so, you, did you always grow up in in uh in wyoming yeah yeah i've been here since i was 10 oh so, wow um on and off i mean my wife and i moved for a while but then we came back and and it's home and that's the weird thing yeah. it's i love the wind it's so windy here people complain about the wind but i just think it's the most beautiful thing in the world and it puts me to sleep but people are like oh i can't sleep because it's too it's too loud i'm like oh, wow. no we're in a great place, but I can't complain. Now let's, let's talk about you though. You, sir, have a very, very interesting profession, but you also carve time out of your day to be a writer. Can you tell me a little bit about what you do? And then we'll kind of go back to the beginning of your writing. Oh yes. Yeah. So for my day job, I have the best day job in the world. I work for the Illinois Municipal Electric Agency. And my job is every year I get to give away a million dollars for businesses in little small towns in Illinois to do anything that saves um, kilowatt hours. So they get to reduce their bill and we pay them to reduce their bill. Um, and for us, it's what we want is we want our um, our our factories to be happy that they've located in these little towns in Illinois. So it's public outreach. It also means yeah. that we don't have to go and buy or make any more electricity. Uh, yeah. they, they can operate their plant and we don't have to find any more electricity for them to do it because they've reduced what they need to, what they need to actually um, 
make their products and things like that. It's a, it's a fantastic job. And it's the, it's the first job I've ever had where everyone returns my phone calls because of course <laughs> I'm going to give them money. Um, right. uh, before that, I, I had worked in, in editing for years. Um, uh, my, my first job out of graduate school, I edited accounting textbooks, and then I moved oh, and wow. edited books on physical activity. And then I moved again to the Springfield area and edited books on political science. Um, so after, and then finally I, I worked for the association of park districts. I had my own parks magazine, which was great. Oh, you know, great. great. Yeah, it was, it was, it was a lot of fun and I learned a lot. Um, uh, but, uh, but after a while I just thought, I just don't want to chase periods and commas my entire life. So, <laughs> uh, and of course now at the office, I do, I do write all the public relations things for our association. Cause you know, they figured out that he's the guy. Well, yeah, he's the guy. yeah. there's so many wonderful, <laughs> like, uh, there, there's engineers who are the kindest and most fearless people in the world, I love them because they they look at a problem and they think, oh, I can solve this, you know? And I look yeah. at a problem, you know, if you see me with a tool in my hand, like you gotta <laughs> run the other way. But these guys are great, but they can't explain to like mayors. So if there's problem mm. with, the, with the generation plant, they'll say, oh, well, we had a problem with this, this, and this, and I said, you can't say problem. You have to say challenge. These are you have to massage the conflict. Exactly, right? massage the conflict. These guys have to get votes, and if they have put money in a thing that has a problem, it doesn't look good for them. Um, right, right. And they're so kind. They uh, they nod and they say, "Oh, okay, I get it." And and they yeah. they are so kind. They say, "Oh, I can't write." That. They'll send me something perfectly written, and they'll say, "Can you fix this for me?" And I'm thinking, it's fine <laughs> it's, it's um, good to go but, yeah. but, but they don't think like they can build amazing things but they don't think they can build a sentence and i just right. i'm just tickled by that <laughs> i'm thinking yeah yeah you can. but it's it's fascinating because i appreciate folks like you for that ability to translate right you you see the way some folks tackle their communication and then you understand that there is a, a gap to be handled. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes, at least as an editor, somebody who, who comes from that discipline or even public relations, you're able to translate to the kind of messaging that needs to convey the right sort of optimism, maybe, you know, and especially when dealing with problems, I just admire that so much. Oh, well, thank you. I, yeah, I, I've told people when I would interview for different editorial jobs, I'd say, well, they'd say, well, what's the most important thing about editing? And I'd say, being naive, you have to remember what it's like not to know anything about this, whatever this book covers. And yeah. I said, and, and sometimes I'd, I'd, I'd uh, so for example, when I went to the political science publisher, I said, well, and in my case, it won't even be pretend naivete. I don't know anything about this. So for two yeah. years, I'll be the perfect editor for you. You know, if you're writing mm. a, te a textbook for a 18 year old kid who's never taken political science, that's me. So, wow. yeah, so it's fantastic. And I would like to think that that translates to any kind of creative writing that you do, because you know, in my mind, I know exactly what's happening. And then sometimes on the page, I'll look at it and say, 
well, what if you weren't me? Would you follow this? And sometimes yeah. the answer is, gosh, no. You know, right. And, Incredibly fascinating. I mean, I, I think that might be one of the most powerful things that anyone's ever really shared with me yeah. because <laughs> I selfishly look for things that will make my life easier <laughs> in the day to day. But this notion of being naive purposefully, acknowledging what you don't know in order to learn as much as humanly possible from whatever experts might be around. I mean, we have to have a little bit of humility there, but that can be an asset when it comes to editing, when it comes to writing and discovery. So that's awesome. Yeah. And it's also a joy. I mean, the thing that happened during COVID, and I know people tell you their COVID stories all the time, but as far as work goes, I got so much done because at the end of the day, my work is pushing paper and doing spreadsheets or writing the annual report easy enough to do i mean you can do all that by yourself but yeah. i'd go i went back to work we staggered back you know half the people would be in the office half wouldn't and they they'd say to me well you know i guess nobody got anything done i said i got lots done but what <laughs> i didn't do is i didn't learn one new thing I mean, because mm. a lot of it is I will walk down to the engineer's office and they'll say, I don't understand how this works. And they do a great job of meeting me where I am. And mm -hmm. so they'll draw a picture for me or something like that. And I, I mean, that was the thing that really hurt. Like working from home was so efficient in some ways, but so, I mean, the joy of work is going and learning new things. And yeah. it was just sucked away. I mean, that was the disease of it for me as we were lucky enough. We got all our shots. We didn't get sick. Um, but we learned, I mean, we learned nothing. It was just yeah. like, and you kids what too, the yeah. ages was then. I mean, we're nothing. So, yeah. I mean, there's just such an important aspect of being social that mm -hmm. is tied into the educational aspect of it. I mean, so many kids who were doing virtual schooling, I mean, they just didn't have a, they didn't have a prayer, you know, to actually learn anything just because some of us don't learn that way. It's right. incredibly hard, but reaching back in time here for a moment for when you first started writing, do you remember, do you have any concrete memories of what that beginning was like for you or what drew you into writing? Yeah, that's, um, it's very interesting. I, I grew up, we, uh, in our family, we had three older brothers and then my twin brother and I were years apart, at least eight years apart. And so we were the second family and my twin brother was a natural musician. And so he like blossomed in the arts. Um, I was not as oh, I was not as good. No, I was not good at all. I mean, I could <laughs> like it might as well have been Greek on that page. Um, but but writing was something that I could do. Although I will say, my my mother and father came from a very secretive place. Um, my mother got pregnant in 1948 when she was a junior in high school. And so there was a lot of the unsaid in our family. There was many things unsaid. So, for example, yeah. my twin brother is gay, 
And my mom and dad lived their whole lives without acknowledging that. Um, So there was a lot of the unsaid in our family. And so if you wrote stuff down, people could see that. So I remember one time when I was in school, I had this poor girl. I had the misfortune of falling in love with a girl named Laura. And so I would try to write these Petrarchan sonnets to Laura. And they were awful. They, <laughs> they were just horrible. And my they sound, mother, you sound like me in high school. So uh, I'm sorry. Uh, go ahead. I my, empathize. Yeah, my mom found one like folded up in my jeans while she was doing the laundry. And what she should have commented on is like, well, this line is, you know, 13 feet and you're just groping for the rhyme. Uh, But what she said was, no, you can't write things down because people will know what you think. And so, oh my God. Yeah, that was a little discouraging as far as writing goes. Um, And the other thing, as far as writing goes, was it didn't seem like such a trick because everybody knows, well, everybody in our family knew English and, and you could, it was just like something you used as a tool to Mm. say things or in our family, not say things. Um, But like Ryan, my twin brother could make, look at dots on a page and and I thought, oh, that was art. But when I got to college, and of course my, we were a working class family. So I studied accounting because of course you could get a job in accounting when you were done. But I also, I knew I loved stories. And, I, and this might be sort of like your growing up. Um, my twin brother and I would listen to the Broadway albums of <laughs> yeah. things. And then we'd try to imagine what the story was. And then we'd act it out. And, yeah. um, and so I just sort of, like, we got how stories worked. Um, and when I got to college, I thought, well, I want to learn more about that. And so I took as many English classes as I took accounting classes. And when I was, when I was, um, finished with, um, well, when I was finished with my junior year, I walked into the bursar's office. I said, I want to declare myself an English major as well as an accounting major. And he looked at my transcript and, and he said, well, yeah, you can finish up next year. I said, well, yeah, I I planned it that way. And then of course, (laughs) at the end of the, um, I had written a few stories, uh, as uh, in composition classes, and at the end of the year, I had $30 in my checking account and the, and the application fee for the creative writing master's degree at Miami University was $30. And I thought, well, I'll take a chance on it. And so then they offered me a, um, an assistantship to go there. And that's when wow. I started really writing. I, and of course, I didn't know anything. I, didn't, I hadn't taken enough poetry classes. So I got into the fiction section because I understood how stories worked. Um, and it was fantastic. I mean, it was the, and I, and I always knew it was going to be two years of my life and then I'd go get a real job. And that's exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I said, my first job was editing accounting textbooks, which was like, like I walked in the door and they looked at me and they said, well, you have a degree in writing and you have a degree in accountancy. Here's your <laughs> desk. And, <laughs> and of course it was just like, uh, you'd get the textbook and you'd say, oh, yeah, I remember <laughs> having this assigned for homework and not doing it, but now I have to do it. <laughs> it was, it was awful. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, I put writing aside for a long, long time. And mm. um, I, 
you know, in, in, in case it, sometimes it would burst out. And uh, like, for example, uh, my wife has some letters that I wrote with poems in them and things like that. But of course, I didn't know what I was doing about poetry. Um, hmm. And one job I had was associated with the university and the creative writing teacher was who had been there for 30 years was retiring and we got all our classes for free for working at the university um mm. and she said well i'm going to teach a class in writing the novel and i and i told her i have no interest in writing a novel but i do want to take a creative writing class because i hadn't done it and um so i took her class and then she would show up on campus even after the class was done. She said, you have seven chapters of a novel written. And every week she would come in and say, do you have another chapter for me? Do you have another chapter wow. for me? Until finally in 2003, I had a novel uh, that came out and then, you know, nothing for a long time. Then in 2015, I, I realized, you know, as you do, my hair is turning gray. And I know nothing about contemporary poetry. So I got online and I, I found this class, um, a Coursera class uh, mm. by uh, Al Ferry's Modern Poetry. And it started with, and it was American focused. It started with Emily Dickinson and Whitman and things like that. And on up into, you know, the beat poets, language poets, stuff I, that I'd finally never heard of. and. Mm. And something about it happened, and I thought, well, I want to try that now. And so in yeah. about 2015, I started, I thought, well, you know, I had, I had been running for a while and got injured, and I would get up at 4.30 in the morning to run, but now I wasn't. So I got up at 4.30 mm -hmm. in the morning, and I thought, well, I'll just try to write stuff. And that's, and it became a practice, and it was yeah. lovely. Sometimes you'd write something, sometimes you'd fail spectacularly, and and yeah. actually both were good experiences. So, <laughs> so that, that's what happened. And I still don't know what I'm doing. I'm, I feel largely untrained, even though, you know, yeah. I do have a master's degree in writing, but I never wrote poetry. And, yeah. and, and, and I think that's part of the joy of it when you don't know what you're right. doing. <laughs> I mean, yeah, so, it's the constant state of discovery uh -huh. that makes it exciting and allows you to to find common language between what you already know and what you're kind of stumbling into. Right. And I mean, I, I find that for me, that kind of, I really feel like my, as a playwright, my dialogue is the best thing that I can offer, mm -hmm. but it doesn't feel like it works in poetry at all for me. You know, and obviously as a student, it's like, here's what I'm good at. Here's what I'm trying to achieve. Where's that gap that I need to take care of? Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I'm curious what you feel your foundation is as a writer. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, just to back up for one second, I, yeah, when I, when I try to include, because a lot of my poems are narrative and sometimes I'll have the urge to include like a dialogue in the poem and it almost always fails. And I think, you know, cause what we're taught is that dialogue either reveals character or advances the plot and there's no plot in a poem and the poem's supposed to reveal character anyway. And so it just seems I haven't, I haven't been able to do that when you learn how, Give me a call and, and tell me. Um, 
but uh, and I'm sorry, I've I've gone on that tangent and forgotten the question. So, oh I'm, no, I'm just curious what you feel your your strength as a writer is now, because you know I think that we all have a preference or something that we've really yeah. trained on more than other things. So. I have tried forms as we've gone through that horrible story, and my my work on forms is no better. So I've decided, well, I'm going to do free verse. But of course, the one constraint or 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 joy you get in free verse is where do you end the line? And I don't think I'll ever be unfascinated by where you end the line. Um, so that if I have one technical strength, which people would debate whether I do or not. <laughs> It is that I've decided that I'm going to be a free verse poet and I'm going to play with where I end the line. Um, mm -hmm. But I think the other strength that I have is a little bit, and I want to say this right, a little bit knowing who I am. So there's a lot of very young poets out there who are very socially engaged and they should be. I mean, they come from backgrounds that are so not privileged as mine. Um, and frankly, you know, I come from Northeast Ohio. If you mm -hmm. let people in Northeast Ohio vote, they will vote for Trump every damn time. I am the face of the mm -hmm. problem. I am not the face of the solution, no matter mm -hmm. where my sympathies lie. Um, and so I don't feel I have authority over anything like that. Mm -hmm. But I do know my backyard, and my backyard mm -hmm. is fascinating. And so mm -hmm. I am going to be a poet who leans into sentimentality and I'm not going to apologize for it. I'm because I mean, yes, I mean, poetry can be a great force for social change, but those mm -hmm. people have to have the agency to do it. And I really don't right. feel I do. Um, uh -huh. But I do know what it means to be a person who is confused about what's a thought and what's a feeling. I do know that mm -hmm. I'm the kind of person who wishes I could convey to my son how much I love him, even though I fail at it every day. I do know mm -hmm. I'm the kind of person who is fascinated by, you know, that the fact that my backyard was once an ocean. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah. those are yeah. things that I think everybody can tap into too. Um, sure. And I think they are a part of it. I, I was talking to, um, I met a poet, Richie Hoffman, and we've become friends. And I, I was talking to Richie about something, and he said, you should write a poem about that. And I said, oh, yes, I guess that's a thing in the world, so you can write a poem about it. And Richie just right. hit me like, that's obvious. But it was like a, a moment for me where I thought, well, anything that's in the world can be a poem. Um, yeah. And no matter how small, and in fact, I think we want poems to be small. We want them to be atomic. Um, and that was one of the problems that I'm still working out because, of course, coming from narrative, especially, I, I'm guessing that as a playwright, you can show things um, mm -hmm. on stage. But my short training as a fiction writer, you had to explain things and it had to be buttoned yeah. up. Like, so why does this guy like a peanut butter sandwich and not the jelly? I mean, you'd have right. to sort of explain all that. But in the poem, you have to trust that the reader does a lot of the work. Um, right. so, so for right. example, you get somebody like John Ashbery where the reader does a 
ton of work. Now in mine, the reader's not going to do a ton of work because I can't, I have trust issues apparently. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, if I'm out walking the dog and looking at the constellation, Orion, you're going to know that, you know, if the, yeah. if the poem does that. Yeah. Um, and, and probably I need to wander away from that, but it's going to well, take it's, years. Yeah. But it's interesting that you, to hear your perspective and what you think of where you're at yourself as a human being, as a person and what your actual perspective is, because a lot of us, it takes time to get to that point and acknowledge my poetry can't be everything for everyone. It's a, it's a specific thing that lives on a spectrum of poetry where activism belongs, where, you know, sentimentality, which I'm very much a fan of belongs, where the, the small and intimate can become huge without having to send a huge social overarching message. Yeah. Um, but to your point of how can I explain that? How can I share this? The, the idea that there's an open endedness to poetry again on a spectrum, right? Of how much work can the reader do? Should the reader do? But I just wanted to make this observation because it's just killing me. I re just realized that theater is very much like that in, in that there is a deep specificity when you're writing it, when you're working with your collaborators, but there are still so many open-ended questions by virtue of what it is. The theater is a big question because by the time it gets to the audience, it's gone through so many funnels and filters and performances, you know, and different things that kind of shape the performance that it's like you it's still open to interpretation in such a level that to me that i think that's how i see poetry mm -hmm. but i don't know if that's the correct way to view poetry what do you think so i was thinking about the times when i've seen plays or gone to concerts and and you know or the ballet especially, you know when, as a performer and as a watcher, and it's often there's that pause between the end and the, and the applause, and you know that folks have made a connection and it holds time for a moment. I mean, that's why there's that pause there. And as a performer and as a, as a, as a as a consumer of of a stage play or a or a or a, a concert or anything like that it's almost tangible that moment is held and i think poetry is the same thing the poetry is you you as the reader and the poem are holding a moment for a beat longer than you would think is possible and that's what I think we're trying to, and that oneness is, is something that I think is fantastic. That like you and I are going to share this moment for a little bit longer than we thought was possible. And I just, that, that idea just sends me over the moon. And that's why, I mean, and that's why as an audience member of a, of a play, I have to do a little work too, right? I mean, you don't, reveal every character's motivation. I've got to say, well, why is she 
teaching this girl math in an incorrect way. I mean, it's just like, what is her mom? And then it, like, we discover it as the character might also discover that. And in that moment, we're both working together. And I think Mm -hmm. every poem, every play, every piece of art is probably an invitation to spend one moment with me and let's figure something out together. And it makes us less alone in the world when we can do that. And and I think that's the most amazing thing to be less alone in the world. I mean, as much as I love my job, I mean, I don't get a less alone in the world feeling from it. But when I get to talk about poetry or I get to read a poem or I get to see a play or a symphony or something, I'm thinking, oh, humans do that. And you've invited me to help do that with you. And (laughs) what a gift is that? And so like, it's a wonderful thing to try, even if you fail at it most of the time. Right. I do. I mean, it's a wonderful thing to want to try, I think. Um, and, I couldn't and, agree more. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. And I might replay that last couple of minutes uh, over and over again when I'm feeling down or I feel like <laughs> I'm not getting there because it, it's exactly the truth and what we should all be looking for in in the arts. Now, coming back to... W- to a problem that you may have had while writing a poem that you needed to solve. Speaking of problems that needed to be solved and, and thinking in such terms, do you recall any experiences where you had a breakthrough while writing a poem? Um, yes. Um, and it was this, and, and I think this goes back to, to my ideas of fiction is that, uh, a lot of times I will, when I'm out walking the dog, I'll find a line for a poem and it sounds good. It doesn't, I don't, I have no idea what's going to happen, but I like the cadence of it and everything. And I will go in the next morning, I'll write it down. And then I will think of a line in a similar cadence that has no connection to the first line. And then, and I used to just say, okay, well, I guess this isn't gonna work. And then I'd try something else. but one day I, I thought, well, let's just trust whatever next line comes. And so trust the next line is a strategy that I developed. And sometimes it works. I, you, I get really surprised and the narrative mm-hmm. kind of floats away. There's never no narrative in my poems, but like sometimes in 40 lines, there's three narratives. There's yeah. you know, a constellation in the sky. There's a bowl of cherries and there's something else. And um, and I've learned not to to care that that doesn't make sense. I figure, well, somehow those things connected with me. And if I give the reader enough clues, maybe it will connect with the reader too. And so then I'll send it out to editors and they'll say no. Or they'll say, yeah, and say, okay, maybe I was on to something. But yeah. Um, yeah, trust the next line is a wonderful uh, thing. So for example, uh, my wife and I were at the Chicago Writers Museum, and they give you little heuristics on paper, and 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 they, the one that I looked at was like you were supposed to write something that began with somewhere a dog was barking, and I I thought okay, well I'll try that, and I just did the next line, the next line, the next line, and it came out to be, um, it came out to be an unrhymed sonnet, um, 
but it was weird. I mean, <laughs> I discussed the next line, and then we'll send it out. We'll see if anybody thinks it's worth anything. If not, I had joy writing it. I mean, it mm -hmm. was fun to trust the next line. Um, yeah. So that's oh, fast. Yeah. yeah. So trust. Yeah, like trust the next line was the only lesson I've learned like in seven years. So <laughs> no, it's fascinating. It's such an important. It's such an important thing to do. Uh, given that it takes a bit of confidence to just accept and not second guess, uh, it requires a bit of self-knowledge, right? Like just being aware of who you are and just trusting the moment, mm -hmm. right? To just get you to the place where you need to be. Right. Now, and I um, think the, the wonderful yeah. thing about poetry is so little is that like few people make a living at poetry. Um, so I think we're mostly in it for the joy anyway. And, yeah. and so if the joy is trust the next line, then the joy is trust the next line. Uh, and then if somebody else, like if an editor likes it and puts it in her journal, and then that's a, a extra joy. That, <laughs> and if somebody emails you and say, hey, I really liked that poem, that's an extra joy. Um, but but the joy is all there. I mean, the moment it's not, I worry about it. And I like, for example, I feel for people whose art has to be their way of making a living because suddenly other things impinge on that. Like, is this commercial? You know, is you know, am I going to find actors who will do this? Um, am I? How am I going to finance this and get this in front of people? Even though I know it's the most brilliant thing ever. I mean, that's a lot of that's a lot of pressure on people. Um, but uh, I believe you can have a vocation and an avocation, and I get to do poetry for my avocation, and it's and yeah. it's pure joy. So yeah, and I definitely subscribe to that idea because for a long time, I mean, obviously, it would be my wish, my absolute wish that creatives would be valued in our society uh, for the things that they do, for the the benefit of the community. Uh, but as we know, that's not the world that we live in. And that breaks my heart every single day. So I do think that maybe the compromise is something that you have been able to do, which is to find a way to use your creativity, use the thing that you're good at in the world that we live in. Mm -hmm. through through an actual profession like that. I mean, we need to be teaching creatives, poets, writers, whatever it is that, that they're expressing creatively to find practical application because nobody deserves to starve, especially, especially creatives. Right. I mean, I feel like that if there, if somebody gave me a million dollars, I think that's probably what I'd be throwing money at, you know, nonstop to find a way to do some kind of structure like that. But how do you think, uh, let, let me ask you this, because I, I think it's kind of related to this train of thought. What is the process when you're going from work brain to writing brain for you? Like, it, does it have more to do with your schedule or, or your, your process? Yeah, uh, my, my most success is if I set the alarm early and start writing in the morning because and i always and if i sleep in i think well i'll have lunch time but you know what happens when you get to work and 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 then suddenly i get caught up in this you know spreadsheet problem 
but I know I can solve that easy. But like, yeah. do I really want to stop and now think about, do I want to trust the next line? It's too easy to get into work mode. And yeah. then, and, and the, you know, mm -hmm. the problems are easier than the ones you make up for yourself with a poem. Um, now, sometimes I will admit, and I'm hoping my employer doesn't listen to this podcast, but sometimes I'll get so caught up in a poem that the first like 20 minutes of work, uh, like I'll drive to work and I'll think, oh, that line wasn't right, but this is the line that's right. And so I'll open up the file and I'll have to fix it. And then I'll find something else and I'll have to fix it. And suddenly you're 20 minutes into your work day and you think, okay, well, I guess I'm staying late tonight, you know? <laughs> um, but if but I, you kind of have to sometimes, sometimes you, you just got to have the notebook right next, next to you because it might, you might never see it again. You right. might never see that moment again. Oh, you think you will, but it never works. Yeah. No, I've lost about three this week. Yeah. Yes. I hate it. Yeah. Oh, and it was brilliant. And the more you remember yeah. how brilliant it was, the less words you'll remember that of the oh. thing itself. But this is pure work. heartbreak. Yeah, it's a terrible because that was the one that was going to change everything, right? <laughs> right. Well, I got a couple more questions, and I'm just so grateful for your time today. Um, but I'm thinking of this lovely poem that you wrote for your dog um, that you had on your website uh, when you took the dog for a walk, and you shared just this this feeling of your neighborhood. I, I read two of them, and I, yeah. I think maybe I'm conflating them, but the first one was almost of your neighborhood documenting that. How did that one come about? Because I just love how you captured that world. Oh, yeah. So, again, I, I, I really think everything you need for a poem is generally in your backyard. And, of course, you know, during COVID, we'd, we had done rescues our, our whole lives after our first dog. And then during COVID, my wife said, let's get a puppy, which was probably <laughs> right. Great. It was the puppy poem. Yes. Yeah. And so, I, but this one was, so this puppy needs a lot of walks. And so <laughs> I would take her out, but I love my neighborhood because it's very strange. I, I, we live in a town like 13,000 and I grew up in a town, a similar size, mm. but the world has like, I am so lucky the world has come to me. So down the street is a person from Venezuela, a person from, from, uh, from uh, uh, Puerto Rico. We have, we have two people from India who, you know, they have a little American children. It's fun to see people become American children and their parents mm -hmm. sort of at odds with them. It's a wonderful <laughs> yeah. thing. And it's all come to my block in yeah. nowhere, yeah. Illinois. And so yeah. like, how wonderful is that? Um, and so I was out and the little kids had scrawled, you know, a hopscotch board. And then one <laughs> decided that he had to tease somebody. And so like, I don't know, Hector loved Juanita. Um, <laughs> and I was just so in love with the whole idea that the world has come to my neighborhood and I can walk yeah. the dog and see how the world is really bending for good, despite some of the things that are happening. I mean, I know people, yeah 
during the Trump administration who were afraid to go home because they couldn't see, they couldn't think that they'd get the visas to come back into the country because Trump mm -hmm. was being that way. And yeah. it broke my heart. But, mm -hmm. and yet they still came to my neighborhood. And what mm -hmm. a joy that was. And mm -hmm. then, but they were still being kids, you know, yeah. and teasing each other with this. And I looked at that and I thought, well, you know, because I remember that the, the end of that poem was, the speaker is looking for the for maybe they had cast off the piece of chalk so that he could write how much he loves his wife on the sidewalk too and yeah. sort of join in the community of that but also yeah. find another you know way to express how much he cares about his family even though it's impermanent and it'll get washed away by the rain but but to enter into the joy of that um, mm -hmm. was something that I really longed to do. And I, it just, I'm just like, the world is so lucky for me because it came to me, even in my yeah. little remote place. Um, yeah. And that's, you know, the absolute joy of this whole thing is, um, at least for me in that poem, I recognized a lot of my neighborhood. I recognized a lot of the places where I grew up where I almost want to say bless you for just being open <laughs> to that because it's so hard for people, for kids, for kids in those situations to come into a new world, to experience something that might be a little bit terrifying to them and find people who are not out to get them. So the way that you, that you captured that, you know, and, and really made it about love was was just really moving for me because uh, it really did remind me of of growing up you know in in a place similar to yours so thank you for that perspective because we need more people in your situation to be open like that so oh. it's just very very appreciative oh it's that. a, that's yeah. so kind of you to say yeah i i mean yeah. the 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 more you're around you uh we had a teacher in in high school who was from assyria and he was convinced that that world relations were easy. You just, people wanted to feed you their food and they wanted you to love it. And it's been like the one lesson from high school that I knew was true. So whenever yeah. you travel, like if you travel and I, and I, I remember my wife and I were in Mexico and at one of these problematic resorts. Um, and finally I asked, I asked the woman who was bringing us drinks because they give you these drinks that they think Americans want to have. And, yeah, I said, yeah. and I said, so when you go out with your friends, what drinks do right. you drink? And she gave us amazing <laughs> things after that because people yeah. want you to have their food and appreciate it. And that's how yeah. the world operates, um, yeah. I think. And And the other thing is like, we have to be so incredibly grateful because all of those people in my neighborhood, they could be successful in their own countries if they wanted to be most of them. Now, some people have to leave for bad circumstances, I think, but mm -hmm. they chose to come here. Mm -hmm. I mean, what an honor is that? And they chose mm -hmm. to come to live in the neighborhood I live in. Mm -hmm. What an incredible honor is that? I mean, mm -hmm. 
Thank yeah. you. You you're coming to eat our food now. That's amazing <laughs> to me. Yeah. I mean, that's just amazing that you would. I mean, you're a pioneer. I never left this country. I can't pick up another language, but you're operating in at least two languages. Like, why aren't you a PhD? I don't understand mm -hmm. that, right? Yeah. And so yeah. often, like, we get the downside of that where, you know, oh, these people are conversing in Spanish. And I'm thinking, yeah, but then they'll talk to you in English. And isn't that amazing? Oh, no. You should always speak. You should always speak American, and I just think, really, because yeah, I yeah. wish I could speak Spanish, because uh, I'm just bad with language. But these are brilliant. I mean, yeah, how can it be anything but an honor to have folks come and share your food? I don't, and and it's and, and it's in my neighborhood now. That's mm -hmm. amazing. When I grew up, you like you'd have to go to Cleveland to see people who came <laughs> from other countries. But now, right here in yeah. our little town. The world's getting a little smaller by the day. And, but I, I do and better for that. it, I think. I, yeah. And yeah. I think I think the kids get it. I mean, it's mm -hmm. the folks who are my age who are somehow yeah. worried about it. But I mean <laughs> It's like you just gotta gotta be open stay open yeah but again <laughs> i mean that's nothing i write a poem about because like i trip over myself when i try to write poems about that but mm. like but you don't force it right like and that's what i appreciated about you know your poem of the neighborhood in that way was that you you portrayed the situation and and the content of openness was there without you like turning it into some kind of ad for multiculturalism. You well, know, it's just like, <laughs> this is my perspective again, you know, just yes. like you being honest about what you sort of like what your voice is and acknowledging it still. Yeah. I, right? I, yeah. yeah. A didacticism about that, especially from me <laughs> couldn't be more wrong. Right. I mean, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And, and, that's but what you're still entitled to to share your your thoughts on it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess so, way. but I'd rather share the joy of it because <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, you know, I I do understand that I don't often like I had someone I, I had a counselor one time tell me, you don't understand the difference between a thought and a feeling. And I thought, mm. I think you're in I think you're entirely right. <laughs> <laughs> well that's you know coming coming back to what you told me when you find the answer to that you let me know because i think we're spot on on that like yeah. i'm that's exactly been the uh the conflict of my life <laughs> but um last question here what is your hope for your writing in the next while and what are you hopeful for in the future oh so before i answer i want to thank you for this whole podcast series has been wonderful to get insights on how other people think and create art. And it, it's such a service. Um, but I like that, that you used hope in the question because I, what I hope for is that hope takes hold in the world. Um, and so with my writing, I mean, I have a, a, I have a chat book coming out um uh in 
December, and it's just a very short, like nine poems about things that I would tell my son, who's now 21 years old, or that about things that we did that were goofy things that I valued. And my hope would be that someday, like he would read that and say, well, my dad wasn't very good always in the moment, but he understood, like in the deep things, he that he couldn't express in the moment. When he thought about it, he could actually express those things. Mm -hmm. um, I've got a full length coming out next year. And what I hope is that that uh, a few people will read it and, and find a little bit of joy in it. Um, uh, and maybe sometimes a little bit of darkness sneaks in there too. And that's okay, because that's part of the human experience. And then, for the longer period, I hope that um, that uh, that I get to continue writing. I mean, I, I find joy in it, and I hope I I always find joy in it. And if readers find joy in it, that's great too. And I hope <laughs> that that happens. Um, but mostly, I hope the world continues in some of the good places it's going. I mean, the kids get it, like. I think I alluded to before the the problem, and it was treated as a problem in our family that was my twin brother was gay. Kids my son's age, like they're just astounded how that could be a problem. And I think as the world progresses to to more acceptance of one another, like I'm, I know I'm going to be a fuddy duddy, and I'm happy. <laughs> oh, I'm happy for it. People will look at me in the old folk home and say that was one of those dinosaurs, and I think yes, I hope that happens. <laughs> Sir, it's been such a pleasure. I know we just scratched the surface. I mean, I wish that we could talk a little bit more about your family, about you know parenting. You know, as a dad myself, I I'm always interested in that. So. Maybe when you have this other collection come out, let's get together maybe uh, at your convenience and we can pick up where we left off. Oh, yes. Yeah. It's been such a pleasure. And I, I'm just so grateful for you for reminding me of, of being willing to look for beauty wherever it is. It doesn't have to be far beyond wherever. Look in your backyard for your, your openness, your kindness, and for spending the time with me and sharing so much joy and insight today oh i had such a great time visiting with you and i will visit with you again off air <laughs> on air anytime you want <laughs> it's a pleasure rod hope we get to chat real soon but i'll bug you on the internet oh that'd be fantastic <laughs> yeah thanks so much rod you have a wonderful sunday you too we'll see you bye, bye.